Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to the Institute for Government's In Conversation event. I'm Catherine Haddon. Thanks for joining us. The last few years have seen extraordinary pressures across many aspects of our system of government. Those pressures have at times been particularly focused on the role of our legislature. The long journey of Brexit, minority governments, the fall of one prime minister, the rise of another. And now COVID with all the impact that has placed on all of us, but also on the workings of Parliament. And 10 years since expenses, the Commons has faced a new scandal as the true scale of bullying and harassment cases inside Parliament came to light. And meanwhile, the long process of working out how to update the very fabric of our parliamentary buildings has seemingly stalled. Now, at the heart of this is the way in which the Commons manages itself, and present throughout much of it was our guest today, Andrea Ledson as well as Secretary of State for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, and later for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Andrea was leader of the House of Commons from June 2017 to May 2019. So we're very pleased to have her here today to talk about her views on what the Commons needs to do now to reform itself and the challenges for the future. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us, Andrea. Um, We'll start with Andrea's reflections and her arguments for change. Please do submit your questions to the YouTube chat and we will turn to those later in the discussion. Andrea, welcome. Do tell us your thoughts. Thanks very much, Catherine. Well, good morning, everybody. What next for the House of Commons Commission? Well, Northamptonshire, where I come from, famously there was Spencer Percival who became Prime Minister, unenviable title of being the only Prime Minister ever to be assassinated in the Commons. And another was Lord Althrop, who was MP for my own seat of South Northamptonshire from 1830 to 1834. So the job of leader is steeped in history, but the title first formally came into its own in 1942. Before then, when the Prime Minister was in the House, he took the title of leader, and the individual responsible for House business was referred to as the Deputy Leader. The role of leader has evolved over many years into its current duty to be the government's spokesman in parliament and parliament's spokesman in government. It's a unique position as the diplomatic go-between for the house and the government. As leader, you're a business manager working with the whips and number 10 to determine the business of the day. But you're also there to take the temperature of the house and reflect the mood back to government. The national theatre play, This House, was a superbly funny portrayal of the challenges of getting business through the Commons in a hung Parliament, but it could also have served as a training ground for what was to happen between 2017 and 2019 when I was leader. At the start of the 2017 Parliament, I felt a bit of a voice in the wilderness trying to make a principled argument, not just to the opposition, but also to many on my own side, that the elected government, however small or non-existent the majority, has both the right and the obligation to get its business through the House. So the first big argument of the 2017 Parliament was to try and seek agreement of the House to let the government's position be reflected in delegated legislation committees. Without this, DL committees would have always been in a minority or gridlocked, stopping Parliament's cogs turning with no way forward to pass legislation. Everything would have had to be taken in a committee of the whole House. 
very little would have been accomplished, and certainly the vast swathe of Brexit regulations would have been unlikely to pass. That business motion was highly controversial, but it was accepted by that brand new parliament. Designed to ensure that the government would always have a tie or a majority of one on DL committees, it was one of the most significant reasons that Parliament was able to function in those early days. I've no doubt that as that parliamentary term progressed and the extent of the division became so marked, such was the level of determination from some MPs, there would have been little hope of that motion being passed. Those MPs, supported by the chair, were determined to prevent Theresa May from delivering Brexit. So in my view, the roles of the Leader of the Commons and Speaker are pivotal ones, and never more so than during a hung Parliament, which tests the responsibilities of both to the full. But perhaps the least understood, and certainly the least discussed, responsibilities of Speaker and Leader are as the two statutory members of the House of Commons Commission, and it's on those roles that I want to focus my remarks today. The Commission was established in 1978, and in its own words, is responsible for the administration and services of the House of Commons, including the maintenance of the Palace of Westminster and the rest of the parliamentary estate. The Speaker chairs it, and the Speaker and Leader sit on it by right. The rest of the membership is made up of WHIP's appointments, and the process is entirely opaque. The House of Commons Commission doesn't publish detailed minutes of its proceedings and its decision process is entirely behind closed doors. Commission decisions are published, but without thorough explanation or context. The last attempt to reform the House of Commons Commission came with the Straw Report of 2014-15. It did set out some changes. Essential reforms included increasing the membership of the Commission to seven MPs, with two external non-executives appointed by open competition and the new post of Director General, who had the responsibility to set the strategic framework for the provision of services. At the time, this was all the result of the controversy whereby the Speaker wanted to appoint a clerk of the House who had no knowledge or experience of the UK Parliament. This was the first time in my, by then, four years as a backbencher that I started to understand its peculiarities. How could a speaker recruit someone as his key advisor with no knowledge of the intricacies of how the UK Parliament works? Well, the report formally recommended that the paused recruitment process should be suspended and a new one put in place with modern recruitment practices. I entirely endorse that the splitting of the role was the right thing to do with an effective director general properly skilled to manage the buildings and the administration, leaving the clerk free to pursue the often quite academic and complex discussion of conventions of Erskine May and of what decisions of the House mean for our democracy. However, the straw reforms didn't go nearly far enough. They left the clerk and the DG as members of the Commission without a vote, so with authority but without accountability. And whilst the report emphasised the appointment of two external members who would inject some professional advice from outside Parliament, they too have no accountability and no voting rights. All too often during my time on the Commission, it seemed their professional views were disregarded in favour of the politics. 
In fact, when I asked the speaker why only the MPs were the decision makers, he told me that this is because the House of Commons Commission doesn't have votes, but rather reaches consensus by the mood of the MPs that sit on it. How odd. One of the other challenges in that very divided and at times angry parliament was that the speaker, the sole chairman of the commission, would frequently cancel or delay commission meetings. This meant that vital agenda items that needed urgent attention would be delayed or cancelled, sometimes at five minutes notice. And for me as the government spokesperson on the commission, that sometimes meant that I would be unable to attend hastily rescheduled meetings. Was this intended? Quite possibly. Whilst we now have a new speaker who is a champion for both democracy and courtesy, it cannot be the case that we simply rely on the benevolence of the individual in the chair. Commission meetings need a permanent deputy and fixed meeting times. So in my experience, with the majority of MP appointments to the Commission made by party whips, there was never any confidence that Commission discussions would be driven other than by party politics. And one anecdote illustrates this clearly. Fresh into my new role as leader, I received a call in August recess 2017 from David Nartzler, the clerk with whom I was to enjoy a good collaborative relationship. His call took me by surprise as he was asking me, out of the blue, to provide the political cover to approve a significant overspend and overrun on the restoration of Elizabeth Tower and Big Ben. This was the first real insight I'd had into that restoration project plan, and I was astonished to be asked to approve such a large sum without any detail. My response? that this should wait until the Commission meets properly to consider the proposals. Fast forward to the meeting, as I recall it was my first or perhaps second as leader, and I was fully expecting colleagues to be as concerned by this request as I was. But they were not. My what I thought to be sensible request that the restoration team cost out each element and identify cost savings to ensure value for taxpayers' money was overruled. We were told that the project would provide disabled access and this was billed as a key reason why the project should go ahead in spite of a trebling of the cost. My concerns were overruled by the other MPs and when the decision was finally published there was no elaboration for the public to see why the project was approved in spite of the overspend. So fast forward again to today, Elizabeth Tower does indeed have a three times cost overspend and a two times time overrun from the original plan, but sadly without the disabled access we were promised. This is a clear example of why greater transparency is vital and the current setup is undesirable from every perspective. My concern about the House of Commons Commission grew as I learned more of its structure. The two subcommittees that support the Commission, Administration and Finance, are also appointed along party lines by the whips, with the Chair of Administration, a Conservative MP, and the Chair of Finance, a Labour MP. The two subcommittees exist to carry out investigative work and make recommendations to the Commission. It's only the Commission that can make final decisions. And it used to be the case that whips would appoint the Chair of each committee as one of their political appointments 
to the Commission so that those chairpersons could explain their detailed investigations, such as the cost of renewing the encaustic tiles in Central Lobby or the glass clock face of Big Ben, or even why they felt licensing hours should be reduced in the Commons to sitting hours only. During my time, I discovered that whilst Sir Paul Beresford, the chairman of the administration committee, was appointed to the commission, the Labour chair of the finance committee, Chris Bryant, was not appointed by the Labour chief whip, who instead gave the slot to Rosie Winterton, an excellent colleague with whom I have a good relationship, but as a deputy speaker, did not have the same ability to represent Labour backbenchers, nor to represent the detailed views of the finance committee. Unfortunately, my experience was that the House of Commons Commission too often simply rubber-stamped the decisions of the finance and admin committees without a proper level of scrutiny. All of this highlights the weakness of not having elected members. The selections of the particular Liberal Democrat and Scottish Nationalist MPs to the Commission likewise made no sense to me, neither appeared to have a clear long-standing interest in or commitment to the improvement and preservation of our palace. And since returning to the backbenches, the opaque proceedings of the Commission have also delved into the ability of members like myself to scrutinise the government during the pandemic. I understand that the recent decision to suspend Friday sittings and Westminster Hall debates was at the instigation of opposition members on the House of Commons Commission. Well, you might ask yourself why on earth the opposition would reduce opportunities to scrutinise the government. But of course, you wouldn't be entitled to any answers because the Commission will not publish detailed minutes or records of which members took which views. As a backbencher now, I've enjoyed several recent Westminster Hall debates, ranging from one I held on the early years to others I took part in on the importance of our decarbonisation ambitions and also on providing better support for businesses during the pandemic. In these debates, members can press for government action and get an immediate and direct response from government ministers. Likewise, private members' bills brought forward on a sitting Friday have delivered some incredibly welcome changes to laws, ranging from the Children's Funeral Fund, promoted by Labour backbencher Carolyn Harris, as well as the Civil Partnerships, Marriages and Deaths Act, promoted by my good friend Tim Lawton. Private members' bills are one of the key ways in which backbenchers can make a real difference on behalf of their constituents. So the decision to remove these opportunities to serve our constituents deserves a clear explanation from the House of Commons Commission, one that with their current arrangements will never be forthcoming. So I hope I've persuaded you of the urgent need for change. The current day-to-day workings of the House of Commons Commission are sadly lacking in democracy, scrutiny and transparency. And there's one other area I want to touch on today, another issue which in my view is fundamental to our great heritage, and that is the Palace of Westminster itself. The last time the palace underwent a fundamental restoration was because it burnt down in 1834. It took six years for the new construction to begin and 36 years before the current palace was completed. Charles Barry's inspiration was to create a large basement running the entire length of the palace with a thousand chimneys through which in summer 
cool air could circulate from open gates at either end of the basement. And in winter, large steam generators could keep the palace warm. He was way ahead of his time. To be safe and effective, the basement needed to be kept empty and clean. But since the advent of electricity, mains, water, sewage and broadband, the basement has become the place for Parliament's gubbins, with asbestos-lagged pipes and a real spaghetti of wires installed over decades without any instructions. As leader, I chaired a monthly project meeting on restoration and renewal, determined to sort this out once and for all. The strategic estates team would air the litany of potential disasters, asbestos leaks, frequent fires, masonry falling off high towers onto unsuspecting vehicles and footpaths. On my own first trip to the basement, there was raw sewage spraying from a leaking pipe. I was assured that this had not just been set up for my benefit. But it was always clear to me that staying in the palace whilst it was restored would be impossible. I'm really concerned at the limited contingency arrangements should there be any one of a number of those disasters. I witnessed the full dress rehearsal of an emergency pop-up parliament And whilst it was impressive in its organisation, it would only work for a few weeks at most. Finding a place to stay whilst the palace is restored is vital, but so too is having a permanent contingency site for our democracy to keep functioning. This is, after all, what every other critical organisation seeks to have. And furthermore, when the horrific murder of PC Keith Palmer took place within our grounds, The security review that followed made clear that the only solution for decant was for MPs to remain within the secure parameter to keep not just us safe, but also all those who bravely protect us. At significant estimated cost, and once again without detailed minutes, the Commission chose to rebuild Richmond House as its permanent contingency plan. In spite of many reservations about the need to keep the costs down, it seemed to be the only practical solution. Fast forward to today, and the issue of whether to remain or leave is extraordinarily back on the table. We now have a sponsor body in place that is allowing a second referendum. It feels like Groundhog Day. Surely the review of the Joint Committee in 2014 and then the R&R debate in 2018 settled the matter. And if that wasn't enough, since then we've had the, tra- the tragic Notre Dame fire to help concentrate minds on the need to protect this UNESCO World Heritage Site, one of the most famous buildings in the world. The SNP are clear that their policy is for us all to pack up and leave the palace for good. Their vote on the Commission doesn't have heritage in mind, but rather political advantage. And many other MPs across all parties just don't want to move out of the place they campaigned for years to earn the right to occupy. It is understandable, but we've gone round this subject too many times and for too many years. Now's the time to just get on with it. If there were full transparency in our Commission dealings, then we might be far closer to the preservation of our iconic palace than we are today. And what's more, we might be cutting the speck of our decant plans to suit our cloth. So I hope that in my remarks this morning, I've set out clearly some of the shortcomings in our House of Commons Commission. 
And whilst a comprehensive review is clearly needed, I will leave you with a few brief thoughts on the changes that I would like to see. First, members of the Commission and the Finance and Admin Committees should be elected by their peers, with the exception of Speaker and Leader as statutory members. Second, the chairs of the Admin and Finance Committees, once elected, should also have a seat on the Commission. Third, the Clerk and the DG should each have a vote, thereby ensuring they have both authority and accountability. Fourth, there should be a permanent Deputy Chair of the Commission, should the Speaker be unavailable because of House business. Commission meetings should be at fixed times and dates. Fifth, detailed minutes should be published, and where there is disagreement, votes should be declared. Sixth, the Commission's spokesperson should be elected by members of the Commission, not appointed by the Speaker. The strength of our United Kingdom democracy is that it evolves to face new challenges. We need to keep challenging ourselves to be more accountable and to restore a real connection and trust in politics. Parliament must be at the heart of this mission. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Andrea. Um, I want to start just by probing some of what you said about reforming the Commission. I mean, this is a fundamental principle, really, that the House should govern itself. But does it have the skills and the focus to do so? We talked a lot there about budgetary concerns, particularly over restoration and renewal. Um, these are aspects of management, budget handling, project management. Is transparency in elected members enough? We've got a question from a Karen Friel who asks, should Parliament not have a transparent business bureau, something more akin to what other legislatures have? Well, that, that's a really good question. And actually, that was one of the key issues we grappled with in setting up the um, R&R bill, um, the, the, the actual bill that enabled the restoration and renewal of the palace to sort of go ahead full steam. And in introducing that bill, what we were seeking to do was to create an Olympic style delivery authority overseen by a sponsor body that would see through the restoration and renewal in a highly professional way, much as the Olympics were delivered by an external body of professionals. And that was in recognition of the fact that the Strategic Estates team, which is the, um, the, the parliamentary group of project managers who do all of the general maintenance, was not sufficiently skilled or indeed big enough to deal with the challenge of restoring a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So I think your, your question is a very valid one, but in fact we are seeking through creating that delivery authority to address that very issue. Mm. Okay, so is the appetite there to make the changes? I mean, you've made a very good case today, but who needs to be involved to do this and what are likely to be the stumbling blocks? Well, it, it's not clear to me that there would be stumbling blocks. I think that um, the straw report um, of 2014-15 is now you know, quite out of date. There are, there are several years of experience, including that of a hung parliament, to see, as I've indicated, how much the, the way we do things currently has been tested. I personally think from my time, which obviously predates the current leader and the current speaker, I think in my time, 
those roles were tested to destruction and mm. therefore need to implement change. And so I do hope that the current leader and speaker who I have huge regard for, and indeed the current clerk, who was also uh, very new towards the end of my time as leader, I do hope that they will be interested and keen to look again at proceedings and try and deliver some of the changes. Mm. And I mean, the appetite to spend money on R&R, &R, as you say, seems to have dissipated dramatically in recent years. I, I, I'd be interested, you talk a bit about the SNP and MPs generally, but how much is it also the responsibility of the government to try and drive this through? But also, I mean, obviously throughout COVID, we've seen, we've learned a great deal about Parliament's ability to adapt and try new ways of working. Are there any lessons there for how Parliament could decant? Could it be done more easily? Definitely. And I think that that could be the huge win. I mean, I sincerely regret that the, that the sponsor body has effectively reopened the discussion about um, decanting or not decanting, remaining mm. or leaving, because actually the real question should be bearing in mind the successful virtual proceedings that have been implemented as an as urgent necessity, we could use that, use some of those lessons to facilitate a much cheaper decant. So whilst because 80% of the cost of restoring the palace will be on mechanical and engineering works, so will not be, if you like, you can't do those on the cheap, but what you can do is to make sure that UK small businesses, new crafts, apprenticeships and so on can really benefit from the spend of restoring the palace. But the real area that you could cut costs according to our cloth are in the decant options and there you could use virtual working you could have smaller offices you could require some staff to work off-site you could have smaller number of committee rooms and do more things virtually during that decant period in order to make the decant cheaper so what i would be looking at if i was uh, on the sponsor body and the delivery authority is potentially not at this point knocking down richmond house and rebuilding it but rather adapting the building itself. Now, that could be a way of cutting costs while still achieving the decant. And bearing in mind the huge um, amount of sort of planning um, inquiries and so on required prior to knocking it down, that could actually also save time. Mm. And um, can we talk a bit about how Parliament has coped during COVID? We've had obviously virtual Parliament, remote voting, but we've also had quite a lot of arguments about how that affects those who are shielding or those who are further afield. How well do you think it's been handled? Is it working? Are there problems? Is there more that we could take forward and actually use more regularly in how Parliament operates? I mean, obviously the systems enabling um, TV screens in the chamber and um, enabling members to dial up remotely and take part virtually. All of that took time to get into place. Mm. And I absolutely pay tribute to the digital services in Parliament for getting it done relatively quickly. Um, there's obviously been some discussion over time about um, electronic voting versus proxy voting. Um, I personally feel electronic voting is even more, in a sense, 
distant and there is the risk that if the system goes down if you lose wi-fi or whatever your vote might not be counted and that actually could have some serious ramifications so i personally feel more comfortable with the proxy voting arrangements that we have now whereby members can seek a proxy vote from a colleague who is physically present in parliament so i think i've always thought having introduced proxy voting for baby leave myself that that should be considered for expansion to include issues like um, illness, bereavement, and some of the things that in the normal workplace um, an employer would permit time away to deal with. And I think proxy voting is better than pairing or slipping in those circumstances. But I certainly think that as soon as possible we need to get parliamentarians back to parliament. I think the remote proceedings and the virtual proceedings are very detrimental to good government scrutiny of the government and to, be, to backbenchers being able to properly represent their constituents. And I think in particular one of the, the things I would highlight is that every chance to speak in the chamber has to be done via a ballot. So inevitably uh, lots of MPs are simply putting in for everything, which means that those who really care about a particular issue or who have a real constituency concern are subject to that same ballot process, rather than when we're physically here, you can go and see the speaker and ask if you can catch his eye because this is a particular constituency issue and he will then be sympathetic to that. So I think um, the virtual proceedings have definitely stymied some of our democratic scrutiny. Okay, I'm going to turn to some other topics in a moment, but just first, a couple of questions from the audience. Um, Ruth Dixon asked, should the House of Lords have any role on a reformed House of Commons commission? I guess that would be a commission of the whole House. Um, and also, Janet Gibson asked, the Lords have managed virtual proceedings very well. Why hasn't the Commons managed as well? So in answer to the first question, um, the House of Lords has exactly its own proceedings, its own commission, its own leader and uh, obviously the, um, its own speaker. And so those, um, the sort of bicameral approach is certainly something that I think would be worth considering. But I do think the two houses, um, in a sense, protect their own independence from each other very closely. And in my experience in leading the work on the harassment and bullying um, complaints and the, the scheme that we set up to deal with complaints, actually ensuring that it would work across both houses was more difficult than I expected it to be. So I do think that there is some merit in looking at the issue of the two houses working more closely together. Um, but that would be something for a much more fundamental review. So the other point about the Lords managing its own um, virtual proceedings better than the Commons, I think that is a matter of choice. I think of necessity, many peers are much older and therefore potentially much more vulnerable in, in their own health terms. But I, I don't know whether that is the case, but I would think that that is likely. And um, so it was decided early on to enable that virtual proceedings but certainly from some of the peers i've spoken to they have also found it has its weaknesses it does lead to a feeling of distance and a lack of ability to really be engaged with what's going on day to day i think the big distinction between the lords and the commons is that peers don't have their constituents whereas in the commons we do and very often the role of a backbench mp is to raise in the commons a specific constituency issue 
on an urgent and timely basis. So virtual proceedings in the Commons makes it much harder to do that. Okay, um, I'd like to turn to the bullying and harassment. Obviously, you were very intimately involved in helping to set up the independent complaints and grievances process. But when it was finally introduced, one of the things that was lost was transparency about what cases were being brought and even when it was conducting inquiries. Do you worry that that might undermine public confidence in the process and the opportunities for victims to, to know that, you know, with certainty what is happening with their cases? I absolutely do not agree with, with your assertion there, Catherine. What's sure. happened the complaint scheme is we took a huge amount of evidence from people who'd experienced everything from sort of normal workplace bullying, which as um, colleagues on the call will um, understand is the bulk, you know, general workplace nastiness to each other, not getting on with someone, um, being treated badly by your immediate boss, not necessarily that the MP, but could be another member of staff. So on the sort of 80-20 rule, 80% of cases are just poor management poor workplace relations and so on that need to be dealt with. There's 20%, however, of very serious issues, um, serious bullying, serious sexual harassment, serious racist or gender-based um, attacks and so on. And there, very in, in almost every single case, the evidence we took from complainants was that they would not want their names to be out there because in those cases, when an accusation is made, the complainant, at this point not the victim, but the complainant, is then subjected to the most appalling um, and public re-victimisation by the media spotlight. And so it was very clear, number one from the point of re-victimisation, but also number two because it would put off complainants from coming forward, again because quite often um, in the case of members of parliament staff, they themselves don't want to bring their party into disrepute, bring their member of parliament into disrepute, or they might have ambitions for a career in politics themselves, so they don't want to be seen as a troublemaker. So for all sorts of very complicated reasons, we concluded that for the protection of the complainant, the actual investigation into a complaint, a, 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 a complaint of bullying and harassment, should be done in complete confidentiality. That would protect the complainant. And also, of course, very importantly, it would also protect the person being accused. And as I say, whilst in a number of cases that was a member of parliament, in a number of other cases, it was another member of staff in the house. Um, this complaints procedure was for everybody who works in or comes to parliament, not just MPs. So there is also a sort of natural justice issue of not plastering um, the fact of a complaint into the media from day one. So that, that was why that confidentiality was introduced. When it came to what I think you're getting at, which is the fact that the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards power to actually put on her website straight away other non-harassment and bullying investigations into members of parliament once they were investigated. The reason for including the um, removal of that power was very specifically because it was considered that it would be very difficult once this new system was up and running for the difference to be um, made clear 
between what was a bullying and harassment complaint and what was a misuse of stationary complaint. And that in the accusations, the careless accusations that would be banded around, it in itself would bring the complaint scheme into disrepute. Now that was therefore a temporary removal of the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards Powers and that is going to be set in again so that she can put on her website non-harassment and um, bullying complaints after the next review is completed which is any day now. So that will be re-implemented as a clear distinction between complaint scheme complaints and non-complaint scheme complaints. It's a bit complicated, I hope that makes sense, but it was intended to protect complainants. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, I was asking about the, that um, understanding that a, a, a process was underway, not the naming of people themselves. But um, just to sort of broaden it out a bit more, I mean, how much more needs to be done about the culture of Parliament more generally? I mean, as you know, we've had Amber Rudge uh, recently, like yourself, did a Minister's Reflect interview with the Institute for Government, and she referred to the kind of boys' club-type behaviour in Parliament and how that still dominates. Um, and we've also a question from Lauren Martin, who says that discussions around bullying and harassment and restoration and renewal seem to be going on different parts, uh, paths. How should conversations around culture change and physical change be brought together? I'm not sure um, what you think about that and whether the two do link up in any fashion. Um, I think there's, there's, I think that the with the complaint scheme, um, it is setting in um, stone a pathway to a better culture. So I think often people outside of Parliament only see the complaint scheme and the so-called sort of punishment and removal of members of Parliament. So it's seen as a punishment scheme rather than a complaint scheme. But actually in establishing it, it was a huge amount of work. We've introduced a behaviour code for Parliament with its top line that everybody who works here, visits here, should be treated with dignity and respect no matter who they are. There's a huge amount of work that's gone into that. And what that means is there's also a huge amount of a training programme. There's new induction courses for people who join Parliament in a new role, whether it's in parliamentary digital services or as a member of, member of um, staff for an MP, or whether it's a new person in catering in the parliamentary st in canteens. So whoever you are, there is a whole support network as well as this complaint scheme. So it's much bigger than just the opportunity to punish bad behaviour in MPs. So that is going to work its way through over a period of time. And what I feel is really important is that um, people on the House of Commons Commission frequently should be raising the fact of the need for culture change rather than the need for punishment, because that's what the, the whole piece of work was designed to create, is, is, is much better training for MPs who, let's face it, you're elected to Parliament, it doesn't mean you're a good manager, it doesn't mean you've ever managed a team of people before. And quite often, as we know, as MPs get younger, um, quite often they're recruiting in their team people of a similar age to them, perhaps people who've had a similar career path to them. So sometimes it's quite difficult to maintain that kind of professional distance. So actually training is fundamental to this for everybody in Parliament. So that is, uh, I think, there's a long way to go, but I think we've got off to a good footing. 
And the Alice and Stanley review, which is underway at the moment and will be reporting its findings soon, I think will actually clarify a number of the issues that need further attention. On the second question about should the um, grievance, the complaints and grievance scheme and the restoration of the palace be seen in the same light. I think that is my whole thesis today. Yes, they should, because they're both the responsibility of the House of Commons Commission. Who knew? You know, the point is that nobody sees what the House of Commons Commission is doing with regards to either of these issues. They're both very, very different. But if you were to look at this as, I don't know, the National Theatre or the, um, the Natural History Museum instead, it wouldn't be at all unusual to see the board of either of those great institutions looking at both the restoration of their buildings and the behaviour of their staff. So if that is the job of the House of Commons Commission, and my thesis today is it needs to be significantly more professional, more transparent and more democratically accountable. Um, I'd like to turn to something that um, sort of came up throughout your speech is the overarching question of the balance of the rights and needs of the executive with the sovereignty of parliament and the legislature's demand for adequate scrutiny. You talked about a number of the challenges that you faced as leader whilst dealing with the minority government. Um, the balance of power almost became a bit of a day-to-day -day argument during that period. Do you think it's a more fundamental problem? I mean, some, you know, feel differently. They feel that the executive has too much power and that during your time it was a minority. But what is the right balance in your view? So, again, as I set out in my remarks, I think it is both the right and the obligation of a government that is Her Majesty's government and albeit elected with a minuscule or non-existent majority, whether it's in coalition or with a confidence and supply agreement, which are two governments I've served under, um, it has the right and the obligation to get its business through. So I think the fundamental right of the government is to determine the business of the House. And the reason why I think that the role of leader and speaker were tested to destruction in that hung parliament is because I do believe that the role of the speaker um, extended beyond what the conventions of the House would say was the right balance. So I think there that what the new speaker, the current speaker, has set out, which is his own commitment to um, listening to and taking on board the advice of his senior advisor, i.e. the Clerk mm. of the Commons, who is, if you like, the uh, the holder of the pen when it comes to interpretations of conventions and Erskine May and our democracy. And if the speaker refuses to listen to that senior advisor, um, then we have a problem, particularly in a hung parliament where a government majority can't just force things through. So I think what we need to look to is what happened during that hung parliament in order to track back to ensure that the... Um, the right and obligation of the government of the day to get its business through cannot be undermined by a speaker or indeed a leader who is determined to do so. And it's only by following through those um, very difficult times when these things were tested to destruction that you can actually see a pathway to protecting them through our own processes. And those have to be addressed by the House of Commons Commission. Um, I'm just going to throw in another question that we've got from uh, Thomas uh, Boda. Or Boda um, um, apologies if I've got your surname wrong. Um, does Mrs. Ledson believe that the House of Lords is useful and should be kept and preserved? And 
Um, what do you think about the government? Um, would they? Um, can she confirm the government would never threaten to abolish the House of Lords to force legislation through that House? Is what he wants to ask. So I think the House of Lords has a very valuable role as a reviewing house. I think that it needs to consist mainly of people who have spent a lengthy career in an, an area of specialism that will be valuable to the lower house. I think that it should remain appointed rather than elected because I think if you have two elected houses, then they can they compete for the upper hand, if you like, and that gets you into all sorts of problems. So as a revising house, I think the Lords is very valuable. I think its expertise and its ability to look in great detail at certain issues is very valuable. But I also think that its role in terms of forcing its will on the elected commons needs to be looked at. I think it's far too big. I would like to see the House of Lords with perhaps eight-year appointments rather than lifelong appointments. Mm. And I think there should be a very clear retirement age. Uh, but those are, you know, my perspective, having seen the Lords in operation in my 10 years as a Member of Parliament. And uh, I don't claim to speak with sufficient knowledge of the Lords to see exactly uh, what would be an ideal scenario for it. But I certainly wouldn't support it being abolished. Um, I mean, obviously, one of the things that has um, come up in recent years, we had the Burns report, which particularly focused on, on almost uh, the, the, the role that the Prime Minister could help play in trying to reduce that. Theresa May, I think, during her time did manage to do that. Did you ever talk to her about that or was that outside of your purview? And do you think that has now um, gone out the window again? We've seen, obviously, a, a number of appointments more recently. Well, I think um, Theresa was very keen to see the Lords in more manageable numbers. And mm. uh, she certainly was quite abstemious in, in, and, and encouraging to others to try and limit the number of new appointments to the Lords. So, you know, I think it was clear where her intentions lay. Um, I think it, it, is an, it is an issue that needs addressing and I hope that this government will decide to tackle it. I think it would be helpful to our democracy to see perhaps uh, fewer new appointments um, that appear to be political appointments to kind of friends and, and ex-colleagues. But at the same time, I think um, ex-MPs in the Lords is does serve a very useful role. So, I mean, it, it just isn't an area that I would claim great expertise, but I'm quite sure that the current Prime Minister will have his own strong views about it. Mm. And what do you think about the current public reputation of the Commons? I mean, I, I think I heard of one poll that suggested that confidence was below the level at, during the expenses or just after the expenses scandal. Is there more that the Commons can be doing to try and restore confidence or is it just part and parcel of uh, the particular era that we're going through at the moment? Well, again, I think my um, my proposal that the House of Commons Commission be reformed is in order to provide greater confidence to the public. At the moment, nobody's heard of it, nobody knows of it. It doesn't fulfil an outward and open leadership function that puts the spotlight on our proceedings here and gives confidence to members of the public that we are both sorting out our own house 
that we are promoting democracy and their interests, that we are looking after taxpayers' money, that we are protecting um, our constituents from, um, from the, the things that we come here to, to achieve. So I think the House of Commons Commission has a huge potential role as a force for good and as a, um, a, a role model to persuade members of the public that we are good people and we come here to try and make the world a better place. And certainly when I was leader of the Commons, I used to do a huge amount of going to schools and universities to talk to people about the role of Parliament. And very often the feedback I got was, wow, I just didn't know that. That's really interesting. And I think that that in itself was reassuring. So I think the House of Commons Commission should have much more of an outreach role than it does. But in order to achieve that, it needs to make itself much more transparent and democratically accountable. So, yes, I do think there's a lot more that we could do. Um, I'm sorry, very sad that um, the House of Commons is held and MPs are held in such low esteem. I think there's a lot of a legacy from the um, Brexit issue where, mm. unfortunately, um, and I would say this, wouldn't I, the democratic will of the people was very much um, attempted to be subverted over several years by members of the House of Commons. And I think that was very much to Parliament's um, disgrace. And I think there's a legacy from that. But so too there has been from the behaviour of some MPs. And I do hope that over time the complaint scheme that is now in place will actually start to change that and we'll start to see far fewer complaints coming out about individual members of parliament. Um, you talked in your Minister's Reflect interview uh, with great enthusiasm for the role of leader. Um, what is it about that role that enthused you, that you know you found difficult, that you, you really got to grips with? But also, I have to ask, what do you think that the current holder, your, your successor, is doing well? What perhaps could he focus on in terms of improvement from your own experience? So I loved the job. It was superb. And perhaps, you know, in hindsight, one of the reasons for that is I really enjoyed the um, camaraderie across the house. I mean, one of the key jobs of leader is to uh, answer business questions every single week. So it's a bit like a nicer version of um, prime minister's questions, but it's, it's kind of in a way, I mean, not necessarily friendlier, but it, there, there is a friendlier element to it because quite often members are coming along to um, seek recognition for something or someone in their constituency that they're particularly proud of. So you do get a very sort of nice end to business questions. But also it's very collegiate across the House. I found that um, the fact that you're answering questions on private members' bills and on people wanting to hold debates on subjects that were of value to the whole House, there was the opportunity to be a bit less tribal and a bit more um, working together across the House. And so I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Also, it was very Parliament focused. I mean, I was at the heart of all of the legislation, all of the Brexit legislation, but all of the other things also that we achieved during that hung Parliament. So being central to the machinery of government, as well as having a hand in if you like, pouring oil on the troubled waters of that very, at times, fraught parliament was uh, such a privilege and it was a fantastic thing to do. I would not presume to uh, give advice to the current incumbent of the job. I think he 
does a great job. I think he absolutely loves Parliament as much as I do. Um, he obviously has a very different approach to me, and I'm sure he will, you know, con continually reflect on things that his ambitions in the job. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure he will be focusing and possibly even looking at some of the things I've said today. Uh, the um, obviously a lot of talk now about uh, starting to think about coming out of lockdown. Rumours that the, in, there'll be a Queen's speech in perhaps June, and that this parliamentary session brought to a to an end. Do you have any sense? Do you um, you know have you started to think about when Parliament might return to a greater amount of normalcy, or is that still a very long way off for you? I mean, I would like to see Parliament back as soon as humanly possible. I mean, I, I really do fear you know as a as a backbencher now during the whole of the pandemic that um it's so difficult to represent your constituents so i've got a number of constituents who've got terrible issues that need resolving whether it's you know to do with their events business that is collapsing around them whether it's to do with their concerns over a, a child of theirs that is desperate to get back to school for reasons of mental well-being you know so many issues that I would like to be raising um, mm. in, in an impromptu way and cannot as a result of the arrangements we have right now so I think for anyone to, to suggest that parliament is working normally it, it simply isn't in my opinion so I would like to see parliamentarians back as soon as possible I totally recognize that it's also our duty to be a role model in not putting lives at risk by being super spreaders ourselves. So that balance, in the same way as for the rest of the country, must be carefully considered. But certainly um, pay tribute to Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker, for having introduced um, fast testing into Parliament, which means that for those who do need to be here, they can get fast testing. I'm hoping that that will be introduced also in schools so that when they get back, they will also be able to be tested very quickly and I just do urge the government to consider the vital importance of parliamentary representation and scrutiny and get it back up and running as soon as possible. If we do have a new Queen's speech obviously there will be a lot from Covid, a lot of legacy from Covid, there's still quite a lot from your party's manifesto from December 2019. What are the sort of things that you would like to see this government focusing on in its uh, legislature, in its legislation for a new parliamentary term? Well, in the 2019 manifesto, we, we set out our ambitions very clearly, and, and I've no doubt the Prime Minister will be um, looking at what the top priorities are for the next Queen's speech. But I personally feel, having been um, Business and Energy Secretary for that period of time and previously Energy Minister, I would really like to see a focus on recovering our economy through building a much bigger green economy. So in the UK, we have superb science and technology in areas as diverse as carbon capture usage and storage, green hydrogen, um, nuclear fusion, offshore wind power, solar panels, um, you know, small modular reactors, all of these innovations coming out of United Kingdom scientists enabling us to build a huge program of green apprenticeships all the way through um, university level apprenticeships or degrees and into jobs ranging from um, manufacturing through to brilliant science. And not only that, 
but we also have the opportunity to export our brilliant green technology around the world, helping developing economies to decarbonize, to protect their rainforests, to perhaps have solar stoves, etc. So the opportunity to trade around the world, but also very importantly, to build new jobs and growth at home whilst re recovering our economy. So that would be an area I would really like to see the government focus on. And with COP26 here this November, got an opportunity to showcase some of the amazing innovation that's coming out of the UK. Mm. Do you think that Parliament is uh, ready for that agenda? You've got a lot of new MPs. Uh, they've gone through a, an extraordinary experience with COVID. Um, what more can both parties and the House authorities be doing to support MPs uh, coming into their roles, understanding what it is and understanding how to to deal with these very big challenges from what they're trying to do as backbenchers? Well, I, I've been really impressed by our new colleagues elected in 2019 in the way that they have really adapted. I mean, they had kind of less than four months, four months of sort of normal getting to know the palace and, you know, working with the you know the the meetings that go on in in the lobby and in the tea rooms and the ability to join all party groups and so on but they really have gone the extra mile i think of necessity to stay in contact to keep their virtual proceedings going on backbench groups and so there are a huge number of backbench groups that have been established by the 2019 intake um and and i absolutely applaud them for that so i think that actually in a way once Parliament comes back, they will be in a good position to uh, reinforce some of the efforts that they've put together. Um, and one team I would highlight in particular is the Conservative Union Resources Unit, that is uh, a group of largely 2019 and 2017 intake who are really focused on ensuring that the UK makes the case for a stronger UK. And that is great to, to see that coming from some of our new colleagues who are determined to really promote a stronger UK. The final question I've got to ask is what next for you? I mean, you set out a huge agenda for your government. Would you like to be back in there, part of Cabinet, making it all happen? Well, that's always up to the Prime Minister of the day. So, I, you know, that is very much his, his decision. Um, since I was back on the back benches, um, the Prime Minister has appointed me as his early years healthy development advisor. And I'm coming to the end of a significant in-depth review of the support that is provided for families with new babies in the period from conception to the age of two. So I will be coming out with a significant and radical set of new policies for the very, very young with a view to really, right from the beginning of life, enabling a society with much better emotional well-being, much lower likelihood of getting into mental health problems, of getting into a life of crime or depression, um, a better ability to hold down a job, to learn at school and so on, by really investing and, and improving support in the earliest years. So that's been my focus during this time as a backbencher. And as I say, I'm 
planning to launch those recommendations um, in late February or early March, and very much looking forward to the next phase of that, which will be the implementation phase. So I'm very busy. I'm also uh, looking forward to getting involved with um, promoting stronger United Kingdom and also continuing to be a bit of a thorn in the side of the House of Commons Commission if they don't start to re resolve and address some of these issues. Okay, well, we will be watching closely. Obviously, we've got, you know, possible reshuffles during the course of the year. Um, but meantime, um, you know, some very interesting thoughts about how to reform the Commission, changes needed for the House of Commons more generally. Andrea Ledson, thank you very much for your time today. Um, and we look forward to sort of seeing where these conversations go in the future. Thank you, everyone who joined us today. Thank you for your questions. The video will be available on YouTube, but also do visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk for more of our work. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.